scandal, murder, adultery, forgiveness, faith, hope. You'll find all of these and more in the pages of Scripture. But unlike your favorite true crime show, these dark deeds that we read about in Scripture reveal the devastating consequences of sin and the unrelenting power of God's grace. Just ahead, a look at true crimes of the Bible. So join us now for The Land and the Book. It's the one-hour flyover of the Middle East that makes you feel like you're there. Well, it's great to be back in the land of the Bible with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and Charlie, you and I are at a place in Israel that seems to be never anything other than hot. You're exactly right, John. We're at the lowest land spot on the face of the earth, and by a body of water that's one of the most dense on the face of the earth. Uh, We're at the Dead Sea, and it's a great place to be right now. And a great place to bring you up to date on current events. And before we do that, though, maybe you've wondered what it would be like to learn Hebrew. Would you love to explore the Bible in one of its original languages? So you're walking around this Dead Sea area and you see signs in Hebrew and boom, there you are connecting. Maybe you'd like to just better communicate when you visit Israel. Yeah, and to help you get started, our friends at Life and Messiah invite you to attend a free introductory Hebrew lesson with experienced Hebrew teacher Melissa Briggs. This group lesson over Zoom is suitable both for those interested in biblical Hebrew and for those interested in modern Hebrew. Melissa is passionate about making the riches of the Hebrew language accessible to everyone. Now, to sign up for this free lesson, all you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. Be sure to sign up today and begin your journey of learning Hebrew. Well, between Ramadan, the recent Christian and Jewish holidays, the protests and debate over judicial reform, the conflict between Israel and Islamic Jihad, the elections in Turkey, and the Jerusalem Day March, we have been so focused on day-to-day events in the Middle East that we really have not had much time to report on new advances coming out of amazing Israel or recent archaeological discoveries. Our inbox has been filling up, so we decided that we would take the next two weeks and focus on both of those. Is that okay with you? I think it will be. Charlie, let's go with uh, story number one. AI, or artificial intelligence, seems to be the cutting edge of technology these days. And Israel, of course, is no exception, as researchers line up to share the good it can do as well as its potential for evil. What are some of the latest wonders and warnings regarding AI coming from amazing Israel? Well, on the positive side, artificial intelligence and machine learning is helping Israeli scientists make advances in predicting everything from strokes to earthquakes. The stroke unit at Jerusalem Sha'ar Zedek Medical Center is testing a smartphone device that can use artificial intelligence to perform a neurological exam on possible stroke victims. The program records the patient's voice while also making a video recording of the face and other parts of the body. It then processes the data and makes a diagnosis within minutes. The program, called CVAID Medic, should be available to paramedics, ambulance teams, as well as doctors and nurses in emergency rooms in less than two years. The goal is to provide triage clinicians with a tool that offers immediate diagnosis with a high degree of accuracy. Now, the earthquake warning system is a high-tech study of the relationship between earthquakes and the total electron content in the ionosphere. Using machine learning algorithms, they discovered that the technique can predict impending seismic activity with a success rate up to 83%. Though not foolproof, the system can predict a potential earthquake about 48 hours before it happens. Now, more studies needed to refine it, but it could hold great promise for those living in earthquake-prone regions of the world. 
In the not-so-helpful category, well, a new AI program has been developed that can generate a comprehensive draft obituary from information online about a person's loved one. Uh, The program called Finding Words offers a digital personal assistant that will scour the web, collecting information, and then help the grieving family do everything from canceling accounts to writing that obituary. It's an interesting concept, but families would definitely want to check the final results for accuracy. And then finally, one historian has raised a concern that AI could potentially create fake religious texts that could attract people to a new cult. Uh, The idea is that these religious texts would be composed by non-humans and would appeal to some individuals, making them vulnerable to suggestions within those texts, like commands to kill someone. Artificial intelligence is a tool, but it's one that can provide a great help or cause great harm, and that's why we need to approach it with caution and wisdom. But we all learned in school that hydrogen, the lightest of all elements, is a gas. But it can be turned into a liquid if cooled to minus 423 degrees Fahrenheit. However, a company in Israel has developed a process to turn hydrogen into powder. Now, how are they doing this? And more importantly, why? What is the significance of such a process? Well, it all comes down to energy. You know, the world's trying to move away from coal, oil, and gas for its energy needs. But the alternatives, solar, wind, geothermal, are too limited to take over completely. One likely candidate has always been hydrogen, though shipping and storing hydrogen is more difficult. And that's where a company called Electric, that is E-L-E-C-T-R-I-Q, Global, believes that it's developed a way to overcome the problems. They convert hydrogen into a powder by combining it with potassium and boron to form potassium borohydride, which is KBH4. The powder is inert, it's inflammable, it can easily be transported, and it can then be converted back into hydrogen by mixing the powder with water in a catalytic process. The company's currently developing a system that will use this powdered hydrogen to run generators, uh, which would replace diesel generators. Uh, They're also working on building plants that could produce the potassium borohydride for the generators. Uh, They see great potential for use in the automobile industry, but that's not their focus at the present time. But to use their analogy, someday filling up the tank of your car might resemble a modern pod coffee maker, inserting a large pod of KBH4 and then adding water. And the only product coming out of the tailpipe then would be water vapor. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. And uh, story number three, switching from technology to archaeology, a peer-reviewed academic article has finally come out providing details on the curse inscription discovered on Mount Ebal. Remind us again of the significance of this find, and has the article helped silence the critics? Well, the significance of the find is twofold. First, if it's genuine, it's the earliest discovery of ancient Hebrew writing. It dates to the late Bronze Age. And second, if the discovery is genuine, it helps support the biblical account of Israel coming into the land under Joshua and stopping to worship on Mount Ebal. The tablet was found in excavations done at the large altar discovered there on Mount Ebal, And though the altar dates to after the time of Joshua, it actually had a smaller, rounded altar inside, which could very well be the one built by Joshua. But of course, with all such discoveries, there are still those who doubt the tablet's authenticity. Part of the problem is the lead tablet's small. It's less than an inch square, and because of its fragile nature, it can't be physically opened. So the archaeologists used X-ray tomography, with different scanning patterns to reveal the inscription hidden inside. 
Now, those rejecting the interpretation do so for a number of reasons. Some claim not to see the letters that are being proposed. Others are still upset that the find was first announced publicly before being sent out for peer review. And still others just can't accept any early date for the Exodus that would match the biblical account. Hmm. So the controversy, John, it continues to go on. But hopefully, as more scholars weigh in on this additional material, we'll have a clearer picture of whether this is a crucial discovery that helps to verify biblical history or nothing more than just a lump of lead. Charlie, based on what you've read and your gut instinct, what would you say? Do you think this is legit? You know, I'm really in the middle on this one. I want it to be true. And uh, the fellows who are doing this, uh, they're first-rate scientists and archaeologists. But uh, when I look at the uh, few pieces that have been released, it's almost like a Rorschach test. It's hard to find what they're saying is there. (laughs) Uh, But then I'm not an expert on that, so I have to trust them. Okay. Well, modern brain surgery is still an amazing medical procedure that's been around since the late 1800s, believe it or not. However, archaeologists have discovered evidence of brain surgery performed at Megiddo 3,500 years ago. What do we know about the procedure and the patient, Charlie? Uh, This is a fascinating story. Two skulls were discovered buried beneath the floor of a Middle Bronze Age house at Megiddo. DNA shows that the two were brothers who died relatively young. One was a teenager, the other likely in his early 20s. The one that had brain surgery also had some other medical issues, including lesions on his bones that they think might have been caused by leprosy. They assumed the brain surgery itself was likely a last-ditch effort to alleviate severe head pain. Those performing the surgery removed about an inch square part of the skull near the top of the head. Doctors who examined the evidence said it was a rather dangerous location to perform the operation because there's a large blood vessel that runs through the region. If they nicked that vessel during the procedure, it's likely the boy would have begun bleeding profusely and would have died rather quickly. And that's likely what happened since the incisions show no sign of regrowth following the procedure. Likely it was a desperate attempt to save a loved one who was already dying. And sadly, in this case, the operation failed. And that's a look at some fascinating stories coming out of Amazing Israel. Thank you, Charlie, for that update. Fascinating conversation ahead. True crimes of the Bible, scandal, murder, adultery. They're all there in the pages of Scripture. But what can we learn from them? Then it's questions and answers here on The Land and the Book, plus Charlie Dyer's devotional. It's a full program. Hope you'll stick around for all of it. And why not share us with a friend? Let them know about the program and our podcast. It's at the website, thelandandthebook.org. Stick around for more. Scandal, murder, adultery. It's all included in the true crimes found in the pages of the Bible. But unlike your favorite true crime show, these dark deeds not only reveal the devastating consequences of sin, but also the unrelenting power of God's grace. Coming up, we'll explore some of Scripture's most shocking tales of corruption, violence, confession, and redemption. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and let me officially welcome you to the second segment of our program, where we encourage you to share your faith in Yeshua. And here's some practical encouragement. You've been praying for that Jewish friend, and you know you need to witness to them, but part of you says, I really can't share Christ with him or her. I mean, they know more than I do, right? 
Is that a safe way to think? Levi Hazen is executive director of Life in Messiah. I think we do fall into that thought, which we know is wrong. But tell us why that's wrong. Yeah. Well, John, I've met quite a few Christians who believe this lie that they can't share their faith because they don't possess certain knowledge. As important as having Bible knowledge is, having faith and God's indwelling spirit is far superior than knowing all the answers to the Bible questions. Are we to study our Bible so we can provide answers to people who ask? Absolutely. Let's study the Bible every day. But we do not have to be a greater Bible scholar than somebody else. Or we don't have to know the biblical languages in order to share the truth of the simple gospel with our Jewish friends. The New Testament teaches us that we plant and water in our ministries, but it's always God who gives the growth. Mm. Even if an individual possessed the right answer for every question, it still would not be our right answers that saved a person. It's always God who does the work of saving. So the next time, if you're hesitant to share your faith because you're afraid you'll lose a debate, or you might not know the answer, just remember... It's God working through the gospel message that has the ability to save, not us. Encouragement from Levi Hazen with Life in Messiah. Dr. Bruce Becker serves on the leadership team at Time of Grace, a ministry that we have gotten to know here at The Land and the Book. He's been a pastor, respected church consultant, public speaker, advisor, and now a published author. And Bruce lives in Jackson, Wisconsin with his wife, Linda, And they've been married for more than 40 years and have four adult children. They enjoy spending time with family, bicycling, landscaping, and gardening. Welcome to the land of the book, Dr. Becker. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. We are sure looking forward to this conversation. I was very intrigued by the title of the book, True Crimes of the Bible. So let's dig into uh, one of the very first in all of Scripture. In the fourth chapter of Genesis, we encounter the first murder, a brother killing his own brother. That's Cain versus Abel. And, and many of us modern scripture readers react with, give me a break. Why kill your brother over something as small as a rejected offering? What might we be missing here, Bruce? One thing that we probably are missing is, is that uh, if we jump ahead to the New Testament in John's uh, first letter, he said, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. And so it was really a matter of the heart uh, for Cain. He was not in alignment uh, and faith in in, uh, in the true God. Uh, He was rather acting under the influence and control of, of Satan. You quote that first John passage, and I'm intrigued because it's unsatisfying in some ways. There there was no motive. There was no logical or other reason for Cain to act that way. His own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. I mean, that's just the way it goes down. Yet we still struggle to wrap our brains around that. Why do we, why do we have this uh, fairy tale sense that there ought to be justice and righteousness? Or maybe it isn't a fairy tale sense. Maybe that's the, the built-in longing that God has placed for us, for his kingdom and his righteousness. What do you think? Well, the the sinful human heart has a lot of emotions that are very powerful. Uh, One is pride, another one is uh, jealousy, envy. Mm -hmm. There were things in Cain's life uh, in his heart that weren't right, and then they come out and show themselves in in actions. We don't really have the full answer into Cain's heart, but um, those might be some of the reasons why he acted the way he did. Mm -hmm. 
Or let's move further into the book of Genesis, picking up the story of Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers. But that was only the first of many crimes against Joseph. There's the crime of Potiphar's wife, bringing a false charge of attempted rape. And then once in prison, after very kindly interpreting the dream of the butler and the baker, his request for justice is totally forgotten by the butler, who is restored to his position in the palace. What a crime! This guy could have helped Joseph out, but didn't. It seems to me that Joseph really was a, a victim of multiple crimes, and yet it didn't make him bitter. What, what do we need to know about Joseph's life, his character, his walk with God? Yeah, I would really like to know, because I, if I was in his position, I don't know if I would have had that kind of uh, attitude. But Joseph, from the time he was a young man, he had these dreams, and his relationship with uh, his God was, was strong. And he believed that because of these dreams, he was called to be a leader, and that that day hadn't come yet. And so there's hope, there's optimism, there's confident trust in the promises of God. And what comes later in his life, we see how God used Joseph to bring about uh, the saving of many people. Yeah, and then you come to that unbelievable verse, you intended it for evil, but God meant it for good. That takes a lot of character, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely. Um Thoughts that come to my mind are, uh, I'm going to get back at you, revenge. Uh, you're going to get the same thing that you did to me. But uh, Joseph doesn't do that. Uh, what a remarkable believer in, mm. in God and his promises. True Crimes of the Bible. It's an unusual conversation today on The Land and the Book as we speak with Dr. Bruce Becker. I'm John Geiger, and let's switch gears here to the story of Achan the Thief. In the Jericho Conquest, he steals a beautiful Babylonian robe, 200 pieces of silver, and for good measure, a golden bar. And modern Christians agree that this was a crime. But we struggle with the punishment. Not just Achan, but his wife, his sons, and his daughters were all executed. To us, this seems overly harsh. Your take. From our human perspective, yes, it uh, does seem uh, overly uh, harsh. Yet we have to realize that our God is both a holy God and also a loving God. And his holiness requires justice. And uh, God had told the people of Israel, do not plunder. Don't take anything. And so Achan was directly disobeying a direct command of God. Now, uh, we might argue or have conversation about, uh, was the justice too severe or but God made that determination, and did he make that determination because he wanted to use Achan and his family as an example to the rest of the Israelites? Possibly. Uh, that when God speaks and he tells you to do something or not do something, you ought to listen. Yeah, for sure. Here's a question. At what point does a sinful act move from being kind of garden variety disobedience to a true crime? I mean, isn't it true that all disobedience is in some sense a crime against God? But it seems like uh, there are degrees here. Your thoughts? Yes, it's all a, a sin, a disobedience uh, of God. But the determining factor is what's in the person's heart. Uh, when I was uh, writing this book, I saw Cain, and, and Cain's heart is not with God. It's against God. It's with Satan. But on the other hand, a guy like Moses, who committed the exact same crime, he killed an Egyptian. But his heart was one of trust 
in his God, the God of the, uh, of the Old Testament. Uh, because God had told him somewhere along the line, you're going to lead my people Israel out, out of Egypt. Now, Moses took things into his own hands uh, in murdering this Egyptian. He was 40 years too early for God's plan to lead the Israelites uh, out of Egypt. But his heart was right in terms of his relationship with God. We come to the very ugly story of Amnon raping Tamar. Amnon, of course, being in the family of David and Tamar, you know, this rape is horrible, and it leaves Tamar desolate. But have we underestimated the other crime in this story, and that's David's weak, almost non-response? When you or I are guilty of a serious crime, and that points back to uh, the crime of adultery and, and, and murder of his one of his leading soldiers— uh, if we're guilty of something like that, there is something in in the human psyche that doesn't feel qualified to point that out in somebody else. Mm-hmm. That if I've committed a sin of murder, how can I speak and and uh, call out somebody else for doing the same thing that I did? Yeah. We're glad you've joined us today for segment two of The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and we're talking about true crimes of the Bible with Dr. Bruce Becker. Well, Paul is complicit in the public execution of Stephen. Of course, the time he's Saul, the unconverted Saul. But we still ask ourselves how and why this guy could have agreed with murder. I mean, that just seems, for a religious figure even, how could he have agreed with that and said, yes, that's a good thing? Saul at that time, uh, he was from Cilicia, from Tarsus, that he hated Christians. Uh, He saw Jesus as a threat to the, the Jewish way of life, because he was teaching things that good Pharisees, and, and Saul was a Pharisee, that they did not agree with, that they did not believe. How could this Jesus be the Messiah? We've got to get rid of him. And so he was just a fanatic in terms of his Jewishness, and uh, what uh, he didn't want to see any threat to his Jewish way of life. Well, that takes me to this next question then. Why is misguided religious zeal, that's how I would describe it, misguided religious Mm -hmm. zeal at the heart of so much crime in Bible times and in our times? That's a great question and one I probably need to think more about. But it, it really gets at the potential of the human heart that we can be on the opposite side of the of the sin and become a fanatic against something which we know is wrong and which we just can't stand to see in other people, we, in essence, become just as guilty as the person who has committed a crime. Mm. Some of that leads to the fanaticism uh, that uh, you do see in some religious uh, situations. What do you think is an underrated crime in the Bible, something that we don't properly assess or view as seriously as we ought? Probably pride. Um, Pride leads to so many other things like envy and jealousy and then acting that out. But uh, pride is is just insidious uh, in our hearts that I think I'm better than you are. I think that God has to think I'm a pretty good dude. (laughs) And it just leads, it leads to other things which are just, just worse. Dr. Bruce Becker serves on the leadership team at Time of Grace. He's been a pastor, respected church consultant, public speaker, and advisor. 
We're visiting today about his book, True Crimes of the Bible. Every single one of us had a hand in the greatest crime of all time, the crucifixion of Jesus the Christ. Why do you think we are so effective at distracting ourselves, distancing ourselves from our part in this crime? Because if we are honest with ourselves, uh, we have to admit that what Jesus endured, not just the physical suffering, but to be condemned by his heavenly Father, that that is just horrific. Mm. And as you said, it is uh, the most heinous crime in the entire Bible, the fact that our sin, starting with Adam and Eve and all of us included, are the ones who sent Jesus to that cross. But he did it willingly, lovingly, because he loves us so much. One impression I have is that we simply do not have a proper regard for the holiness of God and the awfulness of sin. If we did, there would be less crime, and we would do less questioning of God regarding his chosen punishments. Your perspective. Yeah, that's, uh, that's absolutely right. Um, the holiness of God, as I said earlier, demands justice. He can't let sin go unpunished. But fortunately for us, uh, he punished his own son in our place. Well, a stimulating conversation today for sure with Dr. Bruce Becker, who's written True Crimes of the Bible. There's a link to his book at our website, thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. Dr. Becker, thank you for your time, your work here. A very, very interesting conversation. Thanks for having me, and uh, God bless uh, your uh, speaking to people about Jesus. Amen. Up next, it's Charlie Dyer with some more Bible questions and answers right here. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. It's segment three, questions and answers. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer, and I got a question for you. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to learn Hebrew? What would it take? Would you love to explore the Bible in one of its original languages or be able to better communicate when you visit Israel? Well, to help you get started, our friends at Life and Messiah invite you to attend a free introductory Hebrew lesson with experienced Hebrew teacher Melissa Briggs. This group lesson over Zoom is suitable both for those interested in biblical Hebrew and for those interested in modern Hebrew. Melissa is passionate about making the riches of the Hebrew language accessible to everyone. Now, to sign up for this free lesson, all you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. Be sure to sign up today and begin your journey of learning Hebrew. Boy, that sounds like a fun journey, and I hope you'll take advantage of that. All right, to the questions that have come into us, we'll start with this one from the book of Ezra. And in Ezra 10, there seems to be a potential conflict with the New Testament, suggests one listener. Ezra 10 deals with a very serious problem. The Israelites had married pagan wives, and they're told essentially to divorce them. Is that in conflict with the teachings of the New Testament, Charlie? Well, the short answer is no. I think Ezra 10 is describing a very special situation that demanded radical action. In fact, I see two details that I think help explain what was taking place. First, it actually names all the individuals who had to separate from their foreign wives. Uh, by my count in that passage, it's 113. Now, that's a relatively small number for the nation, though it included priests and Levites and other temple workers and individuals for most clans and families. 
to use an analogy, it was a small cancer, but it was one that was already becoming widespread and left unchecked. Uh, the nation could have again been just like it was before under the curse of God in a very short amount of time. Uh, the passage also suggests the number of children involved was limited. In fact, the final verse says some of them had wives by whom they had children. Now, the second reason I think it's not as big a problem is that uh, the possibility is some of these men had actually divorced their Jewish wives to marry these foreign women. I say that because in Malachi chapter 2, he talks about Judah profaning the sanctuary of the Lord and marrying the daughter of, of a foreign god. Now, while that could potentially be simply referring to spiritual adultery, I believe it also refers to what was happening as these men married foreign women. Uh, just like Solomon, they were being led astray. And Malachi goes on to say, God was a witness against them because of the, quote, wife of your youth against whom you dealt treacherously, though she's your companion and your wife by covenant. I believe what Malachi is referring to is these men had divorced their Jewish wives to marry these foreign women. And that's why God then says there in verse 16, I hate divorce. Now, I'm putting all that together. I believe the initial sin involved these men divorcing their Jewish wives to marry foreign women. In doing so, they were endangering the future of the nation and were actually starting to do what Solomon had done initially, leading Israel into sin. And the solution, when I put it all together, he's saying you got to put away those foreign women, recommit yourselves to your Jewish wives and children. That's Charlie Dyer, host of The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, along for the ride as always, and we're enjoying your questions. Like this one from Scott. How did the Israelites keep the tabernacle assembly clean in the dusty desert? Both the tent and the surrounding curtains would have been perfect dust sponges. Did God do a supernatural work to clean it? Yeah, well, we're not told in the Bible how they kept the tabernacle clean, so take this with a grain of salt. Uh, but we do know that the tabernacle had a goat hair covering over top. Uh, it's mentioned in Exodus chapter 36. And uh, much like the Bedouin tents today, I think that helped repel water and helped at least protect it, at least some, from dust and dirt. Now, second, I think that the dust and dirt would have eventually found its way into every tent in the camp of Israel, and that includes the tabernacle. Uh, in addition, you think about the tabernacle, the, the sprinkling of blood on the altars and the burning of incense inside the tabernacle and the burning of the oil in the menorah would have created soot and dirt that would have eventually found its way into all the items of furniture, you know, churches in Israel where they burn incense for centuries have interiors that are darkened from the dirt and the soot. And I, I suspect the same thing was true of the tabernacle. Uh, those pristine pictures we see in books really don't match the reality of what the tabernacle and its furnishings probably looked like when they were actually put into use. And I assume that was just the reality of life in the desert. Keith says, I enjoy your program very much. And I heard something about Israel introducing a bill banning the teaching of the gospel. I'd love to hear what you know about this disturbing story. Well, here's what I know. Israel has a law in the books that bans proselytizing. It's been there for years. But the courts decided that meant you couldn't pay someone to convert to another faith. And since believers don't try to bribe people into the kingdom, it's never been a problem. Now, I do know, however, the ultra-Orthodox Jews are very opposed to those who believe in Jesus especially Jewish believers, and they're trying to find ways to outlaw Messianic Jews from sharing their faith. My gut feeling is the courts will intervene to keep this from happening, but that's also one of the reasons the ultra-Orthodox want to change the courts. Now, this needs to be a matter of prayer for us, I think, as we look at our friends in Israel. In fact, we need to ask God to thwart the uh, ultra-Orthodox and the Islamic fundamentalists who try to do the same thing to Muslims coming to faith. Uh, when you think about it, as you're listening sometimes, just pray that God will give both groups boldness to proclaim the gospel in spite of the opposition. 
Janet asks, what Bible verses model how to pray for the problems or concerns of other people? I have several adult children who confide in me, and I always listen and promise to pray for them. And the problem is I end up feeling worried and anxious and helpless on their behalf. I hope there are biblical examples I can use. I want to transfer their problems into God's hands and then just leave it there and feel peace about it. Well, actually, I'll give you several passages. The one I find most helpful is 2 Corinthians 1, verses 4 to 11. Paul wrote to praise God, he says, who comforts us in all our troubles so we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. In other words, Paul recognized that God first provides comfort to us, and then we can share that comfort with others. And, and Paul, just he wasn't a spiritual giant who never struggled. You know, in verses 8 to 11, he reminds the Corinthians about all the troubles he'd experienced and he goes on to say you know, he was under great pressure, far beyond his ability to endure. So Paul really struggled as well. And what he ends up saying is he realized the pressures were designed to teach him not just to rely on himself, but on God. And he focused on the fact that God has delivered us in the past, which is a reminder that he'll deliver us again. And he realized the prayers of others for him help make the difference. So in light of that passage, here's my suggestion. First, read 2 Corinthians 1, verses 4 to 11, very slowly and carefully, and help recognize that what you're experiencing isn't unique. The Apostle Paul also struggled, so you're in good company. And then second, enlist the prayer support of others for you. Just as you pray for your family, ask others to be praying for you to hold you up. And finally, there's two other passages I'd like to give you. One is James chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Uh, there he says, the trying of our faith works patience. And then in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, Peter tells us to cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. Now, those are two great passages to mark in your Bible. In fact, I would even suggest write them out on a three by five card and post them somewhere in your house where you'll see them as reminders throughout the day. That's Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book. Love all these questions. Now, here's a technical one from Bob. Everybody, of course, has probably heard of the old Latin Vulgate, and he wants to know, you know, I haven't been able to find an answer as to why various readings in the majority text are set aside in favor of other manuscripts, and he lists a number of them. What can you tell us about these, Charlie? What do we need to know? Yeah, and I need to answer this somewhat generally, since uh, the answer can depend on the specific passage of Scripture that he might have in mind, but I'll start by saying this. Uh, most translations don't depend solely on the, the two main manuscripts that, that he referenced, uh, though they do give some level of importance to them since they're some of the earliest manuscripts. Uh, but the good news is uh, most passages in the Bible end up being based on manuscripts that agree. Uh, you know, no major doctrines have ever been impacted where some of these early manuscripts disagree with one another. Uh, but uh, whether it's the King James Version or New King James, NIV, New American Standard, ESV, all those translations, uh, I think we can have confidence that the men who translated them take the Word of God seriously, and they've worked hard to discover the, to the best of their ability what the original manuscript said. Uh, but I know of no modern scholar who would simply base a translation on those two manuscripts you cited without comparing them to a host of other ancient sources to see if they all align. Jim's friend is exploring Christianity, but he has a question about Mark. In Mark, both criminals on the cross deny Jesus, but in Luke's gospel, they don't. How would you reconcile these? I approach those kind of potential problems by looking for ways to harmonize the different accounts. And in this case, I think there's a logical answer. I think both men began their time on the cross cursing Jesus. You know, they saw a difference in him. But as the hours dragged on, the reality of who Jesus was and the fact that he was innocent of any crime became clear to the one criminal 
The other continued to hurl abuse at him, and the second couldn't take it anymore and responded the way Luke describes. So I see Mark and Matthew focusing on the initial response while Luke adds an additional detail. And that approach harmonizes the accounts, but more importantly, it it seems to match the reality of human nature. You know, an individual can suddenly realize they've been wrong and come to an opposite conclusion. And I think that's what happened in the case of the second thief. Thank you, Charlie. Always great to take a look at these questions and hear your answers. If you've got a question for Charlie, email us, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. We're not done yet. No, sir, we've got a great devotional from Charlie Dyer. It's all ahead right here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger confessing that when I come to the Bible, uh, there's no shortage of difficult names to pronounce. Among them, Ahithophel. Charlie, I understand our devotional centers around this unique gentleman. Uh, You're exactly right, John. A man that uh, most people can't pronounce his name, but uh, everybody needs to know about him because there's some lessons there for us. All right, and we'll dig into those lessons after we take in this insight from a traveler to the Holy Land who wants to share this with you and me. My name is David Webster. I had the enormous privilege to go to Israel. It was such an amazing trip. I'm an artist, so I cannot describe. It's really indescribable, but I think my biggest impression was when I went there and when I saw Jerusalem for the first time, I actually felt like I was coming home. And people have asked, what's your favorite part? I, I had so many favorite parts, but the one thing it did all the time was surprise me all the time in, in different ways, in ways I didn't expect. And one big thing I shared with the group that I went with, a wonderful group of believers, and, and you know, it was, it was such a bonding and a family time. And I believe, and my wife didn't get to go, and, and, and that was a struggle, but she knew that was a hard passion for me to go. and. She said to me, I, I totally believe this is true. She said, Dave, you know, if I don't get to go now, I will get to go someday, which is true for every believer. All right, we're headed to the book of 2 Samuel, chapters 15 through 17 in Charlie's devotional, and he's titled it, The Man from Gilo. Charlie, take it away. Now, our destination today, just to the northwest of Bethlehem, is the modern Christian Arab town of Beit Jala. It's a beautiful town, though we're actually heading to a lookout tower perched on the hill just above. From this vantage point, we can see all the way north to Jerusalem and south past Bethlehem to what the Bible describes as the hill country of the kingdom of Judah. Now, take your time making your way up to the top. It's a clear day, so we have an excellent view. I want you to focus on Bethlehem and Jerusalem because today's devotional encompasses both. We know, of course, that both towns are associated with King David. He was born in Bethlehem, and he established Jerusalem as his capital city. Both towns also connect the line of David with Jesus. In Luke 2, the angels told the shepherds that today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, presenting himself as Israel's promised king from the line of David. But as exciting as it is to see both towns from this one vantage point, I actually want you to look at the town of Beit Jala just below us. I believe the modern name also preserves the name of a biblical town that was here. 
the town of Gilo, and its most prominent citizen rose to fame during the reign of King David. His name is Ahithophel. In one sense, it's easy to see why he ends up in the court of King David. David surrounded himself with many individuals from the general area where he grew up. We all tend to trust friends we came to know early on in life. But Ahithophel didn't end up in David's court simply because of friendship or family connections. He rose through the ranks because of his incredible intellect and wisdom. The sheer impact of Ahithophel's influence is highlighted in 2 Samuel 16.23. The advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the word of God. Can you name one person whose advice you would trust so much that it's as if God himself was speaking to you through him or her? Well, that's how much David and others grew to trust Ahithophel. Ahithophel the Gilonite, that is, Ahithophel from the village of Gilo, became one of David's two top advisors and counselors. And his family also apparently distinguished themselves. His son, Eliam, is identified as one of the, quote, 30, a group of mighty warriors. Actually, 2 Samuel 23 and 1 Chronicles 11 list a total of about 48 individuals in this select band of brothers. Likely as one retired or died, another was promoted to take his place. They were the SEAL Team 6 of King David, and Ahithophel's son was part of that distinguished group. Hometown boy makes good. That could have been the headline of the local paper in Gilo on at least two separate occasions. Once when Ahithophel became a top advisor to King David, and again when his son was selected to become one of the 30. Now, this sounds like a feel-good, nice devotional of exceptional men who were honored for their faithfulness. Sadly, it's not. David's partly to blame for what comes next. You see, Eliam, the mighty warrior, had a daughter, and she married another of the mighty warriors in the band of 30. Her name was Bathsheba, and she married Uriah the Hittite. Bathsheba was Ahithophel's granddaughter. When David sinned with Bathsheba and then tried to cover it up by having Uriah put to death, Ahithophel burned with anger and resentment. He felt the honor of his family was shamed, and he lost respect for the king he served. But rather than resign his position, he bided his time waiting to get back at David. He saw revenge as a dish best served cold. Ahithophel found his opportunity when Absalom killed his brother for raping Absalom's sister Tamar. David's lack of wisdom and courage when it came to disciplining his own children provided the perfect opportunity for Ahithophel. And that brings us to the events of 2 Samuel 15 to 17. Absalom planned to rebel against his father, and Ahithophel would help advise him on how best to proceed. His initial advice seems rather curious. He advised Absalom to have sexual relations with David's concubines who had been left in the royal palace after David had fled. And this was to be done on the roof of the palace, he said, in the sight of all Israel. What David had done to Bathsheba had become public knowledge. And so in the same way, Ahithophel wanted David to be shamed publicly. And then Ahithophel went for the jugular. Furthermore, Ahithophel said to Absalom, please let me choose 12,000 men that I may arise and pursue David tonight. And I will come upon him while he's weary and exhausted and terrify him so that all the people who are with him will flee. Then I will strike down the king alone. Ahithophel wanted to capture and kill David before he could regroup and prepare a defense. And he wanted to be the one to lead the charge. He wanted David dead, and he wanted to be the chief executioner. 
Thankfully, another counselor left behind by David persuaded Absalom to wait, gather a larger army, and lead them against David. The results were disastrous for Absalom, who was killed in the ensuing battle. And that brings us back to Ahithophel. This wise but wicked counselor knew that Absalom's decision to reject his advice would lead to defeat. David would win, would return, and would hunt down Ahithophel for his treachery. 2 Samuel 17 records what followed. Now when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and arose and went to his home, to his city, and set his house in order and strangled himself. Thus he died and was buried in the grave of his father. Like a master chess player, Ahithophel saw that checkmate was now only a matter of time. So he went home to Gilo, there below us, got his finances in order, and then committed suicide. The wisest man in all Israel ended up in an unmarked family tomb somewhere in the general area where we're now standing. Now, as we get ready to climb down from the tower and head home, what lessons can we take with us from the life of Ahithophel the Gilanite? Uh, Let me suggest two. First, wisdom, like power and riches, can be seen to be something worth pursuing. But there's something even more important, as God said in Jeremiah 9, 23-24. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Understanding and knowing God is infinitely more important than wisdom, power, or might. Keep your priorities straight. And second, whenever you're wrong, relentlessly fight the desire for revenge. As Paul wrote in Romans 12, 17 to 21, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Ahithophel, the wisest man of the day, came to ruin because of his unquenchable anger and desire for vengeance. You might not be as wise as Ahithophel, but be smart enough to pursue godliness, practice forgiveness, and allow God to take care of administering justice. You will never regret it. What a powerful devotional. Great insights, Charlie. Thank you for that. Maybe you'd like to hear that segment or all of the program again. You can do that easily with our podcast. It's available at thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. Well, that'll do it for today's broadcast. I'm John Geiger for our host, Charlie Dyer. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.